Well, welcome to the second episode of the Apprenticeship Toolbox. This is a podcast where we are exploring the themes of our weekend messages, and we're seeking to ask how they help us to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus does. This week, I, Graham, and Matt are exploring the themes of Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. And every week we sit down and have a conversation about the sermon after the sermon. And uh, it's a great way to evaluate, but it's also a great way to think forward Mm -hmm. and explore forward together as a team. So welcome, Matt. Glad you're here. Thanks, Graham. It's good to be here. It's fun being on the other side of the table this week. What's new in your world? What's new in my world? We, we, you know, we've got this growing family. When we moved to Stony Plain uh, three years ago, we had two kids. And all of a sudden we have four kids now. And our house was feeling like so cramped in and... uh, we ended up deciding to, to look for another house to live in and uh, found a place in West Terrace. So we're just going through all the, the things like home inspections and trying to figure out if this is going to work and all that stuff. So it's been, you know, a little chaotic, but fun at the same time. How Beautiful. about you? Beautiful. I, Wendy and I are celebrating our 35th anniversary today, which seems crazy. Congratulations. It seems insane to say that, but we are. And uh, she survived 35 years of marriage with me. That is amazing. Yeah. She deserves an award of some kind. So Matt, tell me a little bit about uh, what your thoughts were after the message. What are some of the things that you thought we should be discussing? Well, I mean, the the biggest thing, Graham, that came to me as as we were, as I was listening to the message while recording it, was this this idea of worldview. You talk, uh, and you've talked about this a lot over the last few months, this idea of a secular humanistic worldview. And I was just wondering um, if we could talk about what it means to have a secular humanistic worldview and what a worldview even is to begin with. So why don't, yeah. why don't you talk first about a secular humanism? What is that? Yeah, well, I mean, we could go on for, um, you know, episodes of, on secular humanism, but... Maybe we'll start a third podcast. Charles, Charles Taylor uh, wrote this giant book um, called The Secular Age. And I've not read it. I've, I've got it on my shelf. I've referenced it. I've skimmed it. Um, mm-hmm. I've read about it, um, but I haven't actually made my way through all, you know, like 1,000 mm-hmm. pages. But... Uh, he talks about the fact that we have shifted um, from a world where it was almost impossible not to believe in God to a world where it's now almost impossible to believe in God. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it's not a subtraction of belief. He would say that we're all believers, but something has replaced God in mm-hmm. our belief system. And what has replaced God in our belief system is belief in self, belief in humanity. Mm-hmm. And so rather than God being at the center or the gods, yeah. uh, if, you, if, you, if you believed in some other gods, if you were pantheistic, which a lot of people were, mm-hmm. particularly way back uh, in ancient times, um, you might have a, a host of gods that you will, believed in, but you believed in, a, you believed in transcendence and, and you believed in, in uh, a transcendent world. And now we live in a world where we've removed transcendence and put hum- humanity at the center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was Charles, Charles Taylor's A Secular Age? Yeah. And it's a dense book. I'm not recommending it. No. I've, I've heard James K. Smith's How Not to Be Secular is a good breakdown of it, but still a little heady at it the is, same time. It is good. Yeah, I would, I would recommend that over Charles Taylor's work, although Charles Taylor is brilliant. Yes. <laughs> okay, and so with that understanding of secular humanism, uh, which, which we could define as this, repla- this subtraction of God or the gods from the center of things and this replacement of humans... Uh, uh, at the center instead. What then is a worldview? 
That's a great question. Why don't you, why don't you walk us through four questions? You had sure. four great questions that I think you had done some study on, and yeah. uh, let's, let's walk through those four questions. What, what are they, and let's walk through them. Okay, sounds good. Well, first of all, I was just thinking I should probably define actually what a worldview is, okay. too. So um, uh, this is my favorite definition of worldview. It comes from a great book called Living at the Crossroads, An Introduction to Christian Worldview by Michael Goheen and Greg Bartholomew. Uh, they write, a worldview is an articulation of basic beliefs embedded in a grand shared story that are rooted in a faith commitment and give shape and direction to the whole of our individual and corporate lives. And so another way of saying that is, what's the lens that you and your culture view the world through? So it's just helpful, I think, to get, get our definitions in order first before we, mm. we go further. Yeah. Okay. There are, depending on what you Google, there's up to like eight, maybe sure. 16 questions. So we're not going to get into all the exhaustiveness, but we'll just, we'll just deal with these four. So these, these came out of my study at McMaster, um, and they are, who are we? And uh, the question behind the question is, what is the nature and task of human beings? Yeah. Where are we? What is the nature of the reality in which we find ourselves? What is wrong? How do we understand and account for evil and brokenness? And what is a solution? How do we respond to brokenness in a way that it brings wholeness? Right. So your worldview is answering, essentially answering those four questions. Mm -hmm. And if you've grown up in North America, if you are, you know, in, in the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years even, if you've grown up in our culture, you've pretty much grown up in a, in a secular, what Charles Taylor would call a secular culture. Definitely, yeah. Right. So let's walk through those four questions then, Matt, and okay. let's talk about what it means to view life as a Christian and what it means to view life as a secular humanist. Yeah. So who are we, the, the nature of our task? From a, a secular uh, worldview that has no, no God that's created things, that's pulled the trigger, if you will, on creation, uh, there is no real reason for our existence. Right. Like we're some sort of cosmic accident, this, this chance event that somehow caused humanity to come, well, not just humanity, the whole world to, right. to come about, right? Like, and so... Um, and then from a, from a Christian perspective, obviously, um, we're created in the image of God. Yeah. We're image bearers, and we give glory to him, we bear witness to him, and mm -hmm. we join God in his work as image bearers mm -hmm. in the creation. So Yeah, and we're not even an accident, right? Like, we're, right. we're purposely and intentionally made, and so... Even from its starting point, one, one really lends itself to depression and hopelessness. This idea of a secular humanistic worldview, what's the point of life? Well, you're here by accident, right? right. Yeah. There's not a lot of hope in that story. Right. Whereas with the Christian worldview, I mean, we start just from a place of being loved, not because of what we can do or what we can prove, but just based on our, our existence, right? Like, yeah, so let's go to the second question. Yeah. Where, where are we at? Um, what's the nature of reality for us? Yeah, so the nature of reality from a secular worldview is that we're just here. Life is happening. Um, there's a reality, but it's a, a very rooted in human existence and the material, what you can see and touch and feel, what the sciences can prove. Uh, but it's, it's, there's no striving for transcendence, right? So the material world is all that there is. And mm -hmm. whereas in a Christian worldview, we recognize that the the world was created by God, and yeah. it was created uh, with purpose and with intention, and that the world is more than just the material matter that we see. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is transcendence. There is, a, there is a God that has created this in love and with purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he's created us in, in still in a rooted way um, that's seeking to bring flourishing of the creation, right. which then leads us to the, the third question of, What's wrong? How do we understand and account for evil and brokenness in the world? And so how would you say the secular worldview does that? Well, it's a little bit 
tougher to to nail down, but but really, um, you know, some people would say it's because of competing worldviews, and mm -hmm. so there are multiple worldviews. For example, the Christian worldview that that really is competing with the secular worldview, and that would uh, that would create problems for us. Uh, there could be problems within the system, and so therefore we need to fix the system. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no, um, and I think this is where it differs from the Christian worldview, and you can you can carry this forward. But there there there's no personal responsibility for actually what is wrong in the world. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you have a a full of a full idea of what makes good and right if there's no source of good and right in the world, right? And I mean, you know, John Lennon's Imagine still speaks so well to this idea of a secular worldview. If we could just get rid of everything that divides us, if there are no borders, if there are no religions, imagine us all living as one, right? Yeah, I love that song. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a beautiful song. It's great. Right, but it's, it's, it's off. So far in off. In terms of a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. um, and so even when I find myself singing that song, I have to remind myself this is actually not a biblical Christian worldview. The sentiment is great, yeah. but his solution is uh, is very secular. Yeah, it's, it's like a, if we can just fight against absolutes of nations, wealth, religions, and all these other inherent evils in his minds. If we eliminate them, there'd only be love, peace, and a brotherhood of, in his words, man. But right. And then, and then if we jump to the Christian mm -hmm. worldview, we're, we recognize that what's wrong actually is is this thing called sin, um, mm -hmm. and that all of humanity um, has indeed sinned, starting with with Adam and mm -hmm. uh, the, the whole idea of original sin and mm -hmm. uh, the, the reality that, that everything, every person has, has sinned and is born into sin. Yeah, we, we all face the same challenge Adam did, right? right. That, that uh, we had the choice to, to go about the way that we were designed to, the way that God had intended for us and, and we chose another way. We said, no, we actually want our own way. And, mm -hmm. and as much as that was Adam and Eve's choice, then it was our choice today too, right? So then, then the fourth question is how do we respond to brokenness to bring about wholeness? Mm -hmm. Well, and from, from the, let, let's look at it from a Canadian perspective. The solution is two things, tolerance and multiculturalism. If we can all just tolerate each other and get along, it'll be okay. And let's just have uh, everybody get along and we'll celebrate everybody and that'll be great. You right. know, which that, yeah. That's the solution. And from a larger Western perspective, it's improvement of humanity, self-improvement. Mm -hmm. um, if you can educate people more, if you can improve people more, if you can, uh, you know, if you can um, so, uh, raise the standard of those who are the weakest members of society, then, then that will um, improve our well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, will lead to what, what the humanistic authors couple hundred years ago talked about with being utopia. It'd be a we'll, utopia. We'll hit this point of human flourishing where everything will be right. perfect and will be this ideal state. Sadly, I mean, the last 200 years have proven probably quite the opposite, right? right. Exactly. More war than ever. And right. Well, then so it's interesting, the last uh, 70 years, years essentially has, some have said this has been, uh, the last 70 years has been a nap for us because if you look at the first um, 50 years of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, World War One, the Spanish flu. Spanish flu, I was reading, left 50 million people dead. Really? Well, 50 million. Oh, man. And so, I never heard about it until COVID started. Right, the Spanish flu, and then you have World War Two, 
uh, or sorry, I, I missed the Great Depression, and just a little blip, and, yeah, then you no have, and then you have World War II, and you know, 50 years of, of devastation, and then you have 70 years of relative um, peace and stability. Yep. And uh, what's happened in the last 70 years is really this idea of, of secularization that we can actually improve human society on our own Mm -hmm. um, takes root and begins to grow. And really there's been a, a sort of a revival in the last 70 years, but this pandemic has actually begun to have people question that mm. whole idea that we can actually improve and get better on our own. Interesting. And so what would the Christian perspective be then on how do we improve things? What's the solution? Well, the idea um, is that God is actually reconciling the world to himself. God's taken the initiative. It's not a human improvement project. It's actually God mm -hmm. uh, coming in human flesh and taking sin on himself. The, the thing that's wrong with the world, he takes that on himself. Mm -hmm. And he reconciles that and makes us right with himself and mm -hmm. right with one another. And in fact, um, would be reconciling the whole world to himself, yeah. uh, restoring all of creation to himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the utopia doesn't come about by us being more and more awesome and better and better, but instead by one day Jesus coming and returning and dwelling among us, mm. right? And, and uh, the tree of life is there with the leaves for the healing of all the nations that, that Jesus is going to improve this all. It's, mm. not, it's, not, um, it's not our work to do, right. which seems to be something we talk about a lot when we talk about apprenticeship and mm. is how this isn't our work, but we get to join in with the work. Right? Absolutely. Mm. So, um, so that's, that's the, those are the four questions that we really want to ask in terms mm -hmm. of worldview. And yeah. so, so I mentioned Paul's worldview mm -hmm. of being in Christ. And I think we should uh, unpack that or, or to live as Christ really is the phrase that's used in that. Yes. But he does talk about being in Christ a lot. And mm -hmm. the, the whole idea that, that Jesus is the, is the ultimate reality for Paul. Yeah, and he's not saying that that statement within a void either. He's saying that in, in Rome, or well, in the Roman culture in Philippi at this point, or to Philippi, I guess he is saying it in Rome. And he's, he's, he's saying it in a world where Caesar is Lord, where Caesar is king, and what Caesar says goes, and the solution to everything is what's called the Pax Romana, mm -hmm. which is this idea of Roman peace, that if Rome can conquer the whole world and have the whole world under its boot, then utopia, then peace will come and reign over the earth. Right, you know? and a forced peace because if you didn't, if you didn't bow yeah. your knee to Caesar, you'd die on a cross. Yeah, something like or by a sword. Towns would have two thousand people crucified. You'd hear these stories if there are rebellions, like Magdalene uh, or Magdala, the town that Mary Magdalene was came from. Was the, their history was two thousand people? There was an uprising, and two thousand people were crucified. This is just how Rome brought about its peace. Right, and so and it it really is um, humanity's response to peace, and you see that even now. We live in a society where if you disagree with my point of view, uh, mm -hmm. I might crucify you, not literally, but on Facebook. No. Yeah. Uh, or in other in other social forms of social media. Um, I think Twitter's probably the worst for it. Twitter's probably the worst, and I've seen people crucified because they disagree, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps even with the dominant uh, perspective or worldview. So that's quite it's quite an interesting world that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that I talked about was the fact that um, the saints in Caesar's household said hi. They sent their greeting back to Philippi. You you found that funny. Oh man, I loved it. What did you like, like about it? I haven't given that that much thought before, uh, up until you said that this past week. But I mean, you have Caesar, so this Lord who who reigns over the earth and uh, had people refer to him as our Lord and our God. In his own household, you have these people who are following Jesus, who are 
are chasing after this other one who's saying, I'm the Lord and the God. And you have this insurgency almost, this undermining of, of Caesar's worldview living right in his home, presenting a whole other way to be human. It's really, really amazing when you stop and think about it. Yeah, right? Paul is like operating right under Caesar's nose, the competing worldviews mm-hmm. nose, right in the middle of the heart of, right? Yeah, yeah. the uh, heart of Rome. The heart of Rome. And uh, he's converting people to the lordship of Christ, which is phenomenal. And those who work for Caesar are being converted and yeah. send their greeting. It's Paul's way of really, uh, you know, uh, in a sense, slamming Caesar, right? Oh, it totally. Been a huge right? political statement in that day. Yeah, like we read Jesus as Lord and think nothing of it, but then that, that would get you crucified. Right. That simple. Like. And Paul was there for preaching Jesus as Lord. Yeah. But his worldview of Jesus being the one in whom we live and move and find our being, which he says in Acts, it just doesn't allow for him to, to break down and say, oh, no, Caesar's Lord, I'll stop preaching because he knows a better way. Right. Let's talk about what it means when Paul says to live as Christ and how that impacts the, the flow of that passage as he shares his own experience and, um, and then as he challenges the, uh, the church in Philippi, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Paul starts this section with... Um, I want you to know what has happened to me and show he shares his own experience and he's trying to connect the two. He's trying to connect his experience with their experience and mm-hmm. he's modeling for them what he wants them to do. And uh, so, so he talks about his, his own suffering and his own mm-hmm. struggle as being an advancement for the gospel. My mm-hmm. chains are really serving the cause of Christ, right? Yeah. And so what, is, what, what struck you about that? Well, I mean, that statement to live as Christ, again, is a lordship issue. And, and a worldview story, I guess, too. But the idea to live as Christ means that, that Christ as Lord gets first place, that he gets the first say over my life. So if Jesus says something, I'm going to do it, even though Caesar's going to say something different. Mm. You know, uh, like we, I think we've missed out in a lot of ways on what lordship means. We think, oh, okay, you know, Jesus as Lord just means God. But, but a Lord is someone who tells you to do something and you mm. do it, you know. Right. Like Paul talks about the preeminence of Christ that he gets well, for lack of better words, first place in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so for Paul to live, to say to live as Christ means that if Jesus says something, I'm, I'm going to do it, mm-hmm. you know? And you think about the whole idea of the, the, the fact that he talks about his, his chains have served to advance the cause of the gospel. The mm-hmm. prison that he's in has become a pulpit for him. You know, really what he's saying is that Caesar doesn't control the destiny of my life, doesn't mm-hmm. control the outcomes of my life. It's Jesus that, that does. And if Jesus really is our Lord, then any circumstance or situation we, f- we are in actually falls under his lordship yeah. and can, vans- can advance his cause. It's almost like Caesar even falls under his lordship. Absolutely. And, yeah. So he, in a sense, Jesus is using Caesar to mm-hmm. advance his cause. Yeah. He brings this guy from this, this backwood state in, in Israel at the time to the epicenter of everything and then gives him a platform in such a way that people in Caesar's own household can hear. Right. It's like, it's really amazing when you, you change the perspective there. And it's, it's not about, oh, woe is Paul and look what's happening to him. But wow, look at the way that Jesus repositioned and redeployed Paul in such a way that he could preach the gospel at the heart of everything. Right. And then when you think in terms of the next section where he says to live as Christ and to die as gain, where he talks about his own impending death, the very fact that Caesar could, uh, 
could decree that that Paul would would die as a result of mm -hmm. what he's doing, and so Paul says, you know, my ultimate destiny isn't even controlled by by Caesar; it's controlled by Jesus. And so either way for me, it's a total win. Yeah. So if I die, it's an upgrade. If I live, I'll continue to labor on and I'll bear fruit and I'll continue to do the work of Christ. But either way, I get a win, which is a which is a countercultural to the way that our society would view death, right? Oh, completely and totally. I mean, especially in the secular humanism, humanism worldview, death is the ultimate defeat. Right. We, there's no answer in secular humanism for death, right? right? Whereas in, in the Christian worldview, death is just the next leg of the journey, mm. right? And so um, in, in the last part of the message, we talk as well about Paul calling the church then to uh, conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, which really means to live as citizens. Yeah, which I mean, we should really talk about the, the four or five takes we had to take of that joke right. about you, you and Wendy having to say sorry for everything. <laughs> that was, you know, the first time through, I, I think I was dying, you were dying, and then <laughs> it's just so hard to capture again. Totally, but, lost it. Yeah, it's fun being on the other side and, and seeing these moments where we, we slip up. But, uh, yeah, I mean, for Paul, it's, it's really a citizenship issue, which, again, you know, we think about it here in Canada as, you know, uh, probably having the right badge on your backpack and, and enjoying our health care system and living in this, this multicultural world. And we pride ourselves on not being American and, and being Canadian. Mm. But we don't think about citizenship as a, in a way of, this is our way of viewing the world. Mm. And for, for Paul to say in ancient Rome where citizenship was everything, citizenship, I mean, if you read through Acts, gets Paul out of so many scrapes because mm. he's a Roman citizen and they're about to kill him. And he keeps saying, oh, is this how you treat a Roman citizen? And he, he gets rescued so many times from, from the sword at that point. Uh, for Paul to, to say, my citizenship of Rome doesn't really mean anything compared to my citizenship of heaven is this just revolutionary statement, mm. right? I think the other thing that we have to be aware of um, as well is that typically when we think of citizenship, we think of our rights and freedoms, mm -hmm. whereas in Rome it was much more linked to their responsibility. And, um, mm. and so when Paul is talking about using the citizenship language, he's reminding them of their responsibility as believers to live as citizens of, of the gospel, as citizens of heaven, really. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think there's, there's a huge sense of responsibility as a follower of Christ. And that's what, it's not like he's laying a heavy on them, but he's reminding them of, of where their ultimate allegiance actually lies, right? Mm -hmm. It's not with the state, it's with Christ. And so in terms of our worldview here, our allegiance is not to the secular humanistic worldview. Our no. allegiance is to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. what does it mean to live in allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus or under the Lordship of Jesus in the tri-region in 2020? Yeah, I mean, Graham, that's, that's the question we're all, I think, really trying to answer if we, if we take this seriously, this apprenticeship thing. That to, to live as Christ means that I actually have to follow what he says. You know, I'm going to have to exercise self-control and not just chase after my whims and my desires and, and put myself first, trying to build my own kingdom, but instead to submit myself to Jesus and his kingdom and the values of his kingdom, which are, are seen you know, so well in the Sermon on the Mount. Things like forgiving, loving my enemies, practicing hospitality, you know, not walking in violence, mm. um, 
showing mercy, not chasing after lust or and or anger, you know, but living a whole different way. And when, once we start taking that seriously, it really affects everything I do. Mm. That if I if I really want to um, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus does, that this is going to completely change the way I live, which then can make for some really awkward moments when you're talking with your neighbors and you're talking about how your life is oriented around Jesus. And, and that idea just doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, again, just to be clear, our, you know, again, going back to Paul's words, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not, mm -hmm. we're not against people at all. We don't stand in opposition to people. It's a worldview. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the other piece as well is that we should not, I don't believe we should um, be defensive um, or go on the assault, no. but we need to be aware uh, as followers of Christ what, what this dominant worldview is so, so that we don't get sucked into it mm -hmm. because it is the, you know, it's the world we live in, it's the air we breathe, it's, it's the messages we're hearing and seeing all the time. And so, you know, everything from you deserve um, the best, you should improve mm -hmm. yourself, it's all about you, it's all about your personal happiness. Yeah. Um, recognizing that because all of us get sucked into that. Totally, and it's so easy to buy into the Alberta dream, right? right. Of bigger and better and whoever has the most toys wins, right? right. Uh, Goheen and Bartholomew, you talk about the difference between the secular humanistic worldview and the Christian worldview as being two different and incompatible stories. Right. But if we're not aware of this, if we don't think these questions of worldview and we don't understand that the way of the world versus the way of, of Jesus are different, it's really easy to buy into a Christianity where it has no conflict right. with the ways of the world. So we call this the apprenticeship toolbox. So mm -hmm. what, what do we want to give people to think about this week and to work through this week? Yeah, I think, I think we need to explore our own worldviews, Graham. Like we need to, to sit back and, and take some time to reflect on these questions of who are we? What is the nature and task of human beings? Where are we? What is the nature of the reality in which we find ourselves? What is wrong? How do we understand and account for evil and brokenness? And what is a solution? How do we respond to brokenness in a way that brings wholeness? And, and I think we actually need to sit down and ask those questions. Like, not just of what does my culture think and, and what does the Bible think, but where do I land on that? Right. And what is my thought process towards those things? And then how do I live that out every day? Mm -hmm. And what happens when I come in conflict with uh, the dominant worldview and how I'm, how I'm going to address that. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens when I fail, because I'll fail. Yeah, totally. um, I'll get sucked into the dominant worldview. And um, I think that's why church community is so important. We can't live this life on our own. So, mm -hmm. you know, we need a community of, of believers that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He feels very connected to them. Mm -hmm. They're all part of the same community and, and they're keeping each other accountable and holding Christ up together. Mm -hmm. And I find that, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I miss um, about not meeting together regularly in person is the ability to do that. I, we do it online, we do it in small group, we're continuing to do that, but there is this, this need, I think, for the church to continue to proclaim the gospel, not just to the world, but to each other. Totally, yeah. And we, we need people to, who actually know what life is like yeah. for us so that they can challenge us on this because, yeah, yeah the, way, the way we respond to these things and the ways that we we can get sucked into these, this worldview are so easy. So, yeah. so yeah, so answer these questions and don't do it alone, I guess is the other, the answer to that. Remember, we're practicing the way of Jesus together.
Cool. Not alone. So. Well, thanks for joining us, friends. Mm -hmm. We're so glad that you have decided to take this time to listen to us. And uh, we pray that you would continue to grow as apprentices of Jesus. See you next week. Grace and peace.